discussion of independence, free will, liberty, and the left-hand path. This is Damonosophy 2.0 with your host, Paul Frederick. Greetings and welcome to episode 10 of D2. Tonight, our guest is Dr. Aaron Cheek who is a scholar of comparative religion, philosophy, and esotericism. He's a former president of the International Gene Gebser Society, 2013 to 2015, and he received his doctorate in religious studies from the University of Queensland in 2011 for his work on French hermetic philosopher René Schwaller de Lubitz. Outside the academy, Aaron has been trained in the preparation of Spagyric Elixirs, Paracelsus College, Sparagyris Institute, and is a practitioner within the Nyingma and Kagyu lineages of Vajrayana Buddhism. He's a founding director of Rubido Press. His principal publications include Alchemical Traditions from Antiquity to the Avant-Garde, 2013, Diaphany, a journal and nocturne, 2015, and the leaf of immortality in 2017. He presently lives on the rugged west coast of New Zealand, where he maintains an active interest in tea, wine, poetry, typography, and alchemy. And here's the funny part I know that guy. I actually met Aaron Cheek at some point in the mid-90s when I was touring with my goth band Morphine Angel over in Australia. And at some point when we were playing in Brisbane, I had occasion to actually meet a young Aaron Cheek. And we connected on various other esoteric and philosophical lines and developed a friendship which endeared over some time till, oh, I don't know, maybe... 18 or so years ago. So it's been about 18, 19 years since I've actually spoken directly with Aaron Cheek until now. So if you can imagine all of the emotion and all of the excitement that's wrapped up in this, then I invite you to join me for a very intriguing discussion with Dr. Aaron Cheek. And we're live. Hey, Dr. Cheek, how's it going? Yeah, good, good. Good, good. It's, uh, it's been a long time. It has. So um, I think that you and I first met around 1994. Is that correct? It sounds about right, yeah. Sounds about right. Yeah. Okay, so, so let me try and like walk back and, and see if I can recollect, if my, if my recollection uh, matches up with yours at all. So I was on tour with uh, my goth band Morphine Angel at the time in Australia, and we are touring up the East Coast, Melbourne, Sydney, mm-hmm. et cetera, et cetera, and then we played a show in Brisbane. And that's I, right. I think that's where, that's where we first met, right? Yeah, I was living in Brisbane at the time, and yeah, it was early to mid-1990s. Uh, yeah, um, 
yeah, and I came along to see Morphine Angel, and uh, yeah, the rest is history, as they say. So I have to ask you this: Did you, um, you know, right, right, right off the bat in this uh, discussion, I'm gonna fall down I'm a rabbit the- hole here. Do so. You came to the show. Would we yes, play there? Yes. So yeah. was there an opening band? Oh God! Or was, um, there, or was it a headlining band? Was there a black metal band that played? No, I don't. Not that I remember. I, I think you guys might have might have even headlined, uh, and there may have been another band, but God, I, I have no idea what they were. No rec- okay. So the reason I ask is, do you remember um, Carl, our guitar player at the time? Did you ever beat him? I met him definitely. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so. He was like a quirky kind of guy. Um, he had a, uh, an interest in, in UFOs and other sorts of paranormal things. But like, and, and, and I haven't spoken to him for like probably 15 years or so. I don't know what happened to him. But before he totally dropped off of the face of the earth, totally dropped off the map, I talked to him one last time. And he said, do you remember that show that we played in Brisbane? And do you remember there was a black metal band that we played with? And I was like, yeah, I remember that. And he's like, do you remember the name of the band? I'm like, no, I, I couldn't remember who it was. And he said, that was The Immortal. And I said, are you fucking serious, The Immortal? No, I know who The Immortal is now, but is that who we played with then? Were they at a point where they were like just touring and they were like, because I remember whoever the band was, they were kind of in the same position Morphine Angel was at the time. They were like, yeah, we're just out here, you know, bu- busting our chops, cutting our teeth, trying to make it, you know, trying to survive on the road and stuff. And yeah, yeah. anyhow, he told me that. And so I'm just trying to find, you're, you're like probably the only other person in the world that I know of, that I could talk to. There's even a chance that you would remember another band that night. You know, there's, there's a couple of people from back in the day uh, that I can probably feel around to, to you know, to verify this, this claim. <laughs> um, yeah, I'll, I'll ask around and if, yeah, yeah. But that's kind of, that's interesting, you know. It's curious. It really made me wonder because the other thing about Carl is he was always prone to he's really he was really into UFOs and alien abduction and implanted memory type things. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, maybe he was just maybe he was just fucking with me. I'm not sure. But if you could reach out to anyone over there, if anyone has any recollection of the immortal playing there with Morphine Angel circa 1994, I'd All love right. to hear about it. Yeah, maybe yeah, we have to make sure it's not uh uh, implanted memory in, in Carl's head, right? Right. <laughs> Which is very possible. So, um, so when we met, we were both um, we were both interested in uh, SETI and ideas at the time. Um, and I know we we're interested in, in in Fourth Way, and I know we talked a lot about NLP. Um, our, mm. so are any so? What are your recollections of that time? Yeah, that would. I think they were the definitely the points of convergence uh, that that we really gelled on. Um, yeah, I was I was fairly new uh, to the world of SETI and philosophy at that point, and I guess one of the things I was getting my teeth into was the fourth way and the Gurdjieff the Gurdjieff work. Uh, work. Um, yeah, and NLP. I was quite 
I was exposed to the world of NLP at the time, which um, I don't really deal with much anymore. I sort of went through it and out the other side and, and moved on. Um, but the, the the Gurdjieff work has always stayed with me, I think. You know, I, had, I think I had my first profound, real, I guess, initiatory experience of, of being with a capital B um, using, you know, Gurdjieffian techniques. So that, yeah, that always stayed with me. So, uh, and, and we're going to talk more about what you've been doing for, you know, say the last, you know, five years or so, the last decade or so, all of the uh, uh, alchemical work and, and, and really intense, uh, very high profile stuff that you've been doing out there. But uh, since now that we're like kind of like back in time here, do you see any of, are any of these things an influence on you? Like if, if, if people go and they study um, alchemical tradition and such forth, are they going to see the influences of, 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 of fourth way, NLP, uh, setting ideas, things like that in there? There's definitely some traces, you know, um, where, cause there's, for instance, in, in the alchemical traditions book or in other places, when I write about, um, now, you know, now and then the, the, the God set Typhon will come up. And, and when I write about him, it's coming from a, a much deeper place than just the cursory intellectual summary. Right. So, and I think my work in general, even as a scholar, um, I've always striven to be, yeah, in, in Gurdjieffian terms, you know, you can make this, this, the distinction between a man of intellect and a, and a, and a man of being. And um, I've always tried to write from that, that place of being, using the intellectual apparatus and all that. But um, I think even scholars sort of, you know, will look at my work and to realize that, okay, this guy's coming across as a scholar in all the right ways, but there's something else going on and he's probably sympathetic or, or, or something to the material, to the material that he is, he's exploring. So, um, so I always try to straddle that, that sort of, uh, that, that line between the, I guess, the, the pure objective scholar and, and the more, um, phenomenologically engaged experiential position. Um, and yeah, for me, that really goes back to a lot of core Gojekian principles, uh, yeah, no, I I I I completely agree. Um, the idea of the man of intellect versus man of being, and when people write about things that they actually have experience with, it's completely different when people write about things that they don't actually have direct experience mm. with. And if anything, I think the market. Uh, maybe because of DIY self-publishing stuff um, has just become inundated with people wanting to write books about I'm a guru and I have a system uh, and all these sorts of things. And when you read it, though, if, if, if they haven't really had that experience, it's always really clear, I, th I think, to, to those of us who, who have had the experiences. Yeah, and it's, it's sort of something qualitative that you – you sense in the in the work, I think, and um, you know, even you know, I went through the whole academic process and came out the other side, and I um, always strove to be a you know a, a rigorous scholar, and I never, I never, I didn't want to be one of those scholars that that says I'm a you know practitioner scholar, uh, and um, you, you get some people, especially you know scholars of uh, Wicca and neo paganism and stuff, and they're kind of like. 
distinctly placing themselves as scholar practitioners and they're both inside and outside of the traditions they're studying. And I, you know, I never put myself um, explicitly out there in that kind of position, but I think, I think um, my colleagues would just sense anyway that I was coming from somewhere a little bit more qualitatively grounded uh, than just merely an intellectual study. So, um, so this this is one difference uh, between uh, the Aaron Cheek I knew back then and the Aaron Cheek that I'm talking to right now is that the Aaron Cheek I'm talking to right now is a PhD, and he wasn't a PhD back then. So, at what where where did that come into the mix? At what point did your field of studies and and what is your degree and what is your field of study in specifically right now? And at what point in your I guess your initiatory work did that become a significant part of it right well you know my path to the academy and i guess through the academy was um and it started out through my philosophical and initiatory interests i i was always drawn to explore more um rigorous sources uh, from whatever I was interested in, so, you know, so if I was looking at Egyptology or um, the idea of the left-hand path or, or whatever, I wanted to get to the kind of like the source texts, you know, and the kind of the intellectual bedrock of whatever I was drawn to. And so inevitably I ended up uh, reading more and more scholarly level texts and um I think I was, I was reading a lot of the Iranos kind of figures like Henry Corban, Machia Eliade, and you know, Carl Jung, and um, these kinds of figures. And their works, and you know, on the esoteric end of that scale, there's people like Rene Guénon and Julius Savola and their perennial philosophers. And um, so that, you know, and that sort of started um, opening up a, a kind of a more intellectual world and a more philosophical world that was also grounded in, you know, these, these were, most of these people were uh, established scholars of some kind. And I just felt that their work was, I was very inspired by their approach, how they kept some uh, genuine, uh, I guess, philosophical or initiatory or spiritual insight uh, alongside all the academic apparatus, you know, and I was really, really inspired by that approach. So I just became more and more immersed in that, that's those sort of figures and those kind of works. And I, and, and, and basically I ended up, I was reading and, and writing on all this stuff and I just figured, well, look, I'm doing this anyway. I might as well, I might as well go to university and at least get some credit for it. Uh, you know, um, so, because before that, I, I had no aspirations whatsoever to, to go to university. Uh, mm-hmm. When I finished, when I finished high school, I was more into visual art, and I didn't even have a, 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 a score to qualify for university. And, um, and around the time I met you, you know, my interests were more into in music and kind of esoteric philosophy. Um, but yeah, at, at some point, my creative focus or my creative energies shifted into a more academic or intellectual mode, and um, that's when I, yeah, I, I took the first steps on that path. And but as always, it came from a, a 
really came from my own esoterical mystical quest to just deepen my knowledge or understanding of, of whatever it was that was my path. So you've reminded me of a couple of things, but the first one that I have to mention is Dr. Fibes, <laughs> Clockwork Wizards, right? Oh, what, 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 was the, what was the name of the project? What was? Oh, that's right. Um, did you do a Dr. Fibes thing? I was tinkering with some, yeah, like because I was in some bands, you know, as you as you as you are at that age, and um, I pulled out of the bands I was in, and I just wanted to kind of create music on my own. So I enjoyed the creative process of, of writing and making music, and because um, I was doing it all myself with just these machines, you know, I I, I kind of was unofficially calling my project. Um, no, Dr. Something, I forget. I didn't even have a degree of any kind. I was calling myself Dr. Something or other and and his clockwork musicians. You know, after after the Fibes movie where he's right. got these, you know, clockwork. Because um, I kind of imagine my my electronic machines were like my clockwork uh, musicians. So. Yeah, uh, that, that brings back some memories. Um, I never actually did anything official with that. Um, but, yeah, it's it was – Part of the process of my creative energy shifting from visual art to, to music and then eventually into writing uh, and, and scholarship. So these are all, you know, I guess, re-manifestations of my, my personal creative drive or expression. I, I think they all go together. Um, and so I'll tell you, at this point, I think about 80% of the guests that uh, I've had on D2 have been uh, musicians in addition to being writers or philosophers or what have you. And so yeah. we started making this uh, little uh, statement that all the great uh, left-hand path magicians nowadays are also great left-hand path musicians uh, today. And I'm not sure exactly why that is. That's um, actually, I've been working with the people who are doing a new the, the new Magical Egypt series. And um, you know, we we talk about this a lot um, because Chance Gardner, the, the the main guy behind the series, is a musician, and uh, one of the you know it, it, a lot of it comes down to the um, the kind of bihemispherical brain, the left right kind of brain divide. So there's you know there's a side of the brain responsible for creativity and you know um, pattern recognition and all these kind of more intuitive and creative processes. And then there's a the more strict rational scientific intellectual side of the brain and um generally yeah i think people who are trying to be more whole more more integral beings um are, are people who are trying to yeah include both sides of that equation right absolutely and also i feel it's another form of storytelling too I mean, uh, you get back to the roots of like music, especially on the folkish side of things. It's absolutely a form of of storytelling, and quite often our most ancient, um, you know, ancient religious spiritual texts, uh, writings that we have, books that we have, were originally completely oral songs. You know, Zarathustra's Gathas and the and the Edas mm. and, and all of this sort of thing. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, or you know the. The, the deepest roots of uh, 
Western culture, but Indo, you know, broadly speaking, Indo-European culture, were all oral traditions. You know, the text, written texts came later. I mean, whether it's same with whether it's Homer or the Vedas or yeah, the Gathas. Um, and yeah, that's this idea of narrative storytelling is inherently more memorable. Mm-hmm. You, know, you remember a story. You don't really remember an academic exposition. Yeah, right. unless the argument. Unless I make a distinct, really, really distinct point. And I'm at a point where, like, if I want to describe, you know, complex, say, alchemical ideas or something, I want to use images that evoke uh, that evoke sensations in your being, uh, visually or, or otherwise, um, because they're more impactful on the soul, you know. And um, there's a the purely intellectual side of things is, is very much in danger of just getting lost um over time so yeah yeah storytelling uh i think is i know there's something i think the human psyche has an innate instinct for narrative and for these kinds of uh primordial stories absolutely and i think um maybe this goes back to the uh intellect intellectual man versus the man of 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 being um and the idea that the intellect has its limitations and that it's uh you know what Gurdjieff liked to talk about is the formatory apparatus that the intellect likes to be very binary about things and be very mm. yes no on off true false uh and then you know the 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 priesthood of intellect starts talking about logical proofs and 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 all of this sort of thing um whereas there's something else that goes into ideas that will make them a uh, I guess you would say a higher quality, and this is a word that you you've you've used um, talking about quality. So, do you think that some ideas are substantially of higher quality than other ideas? Um, yeah, definitely. I think the qualitative element is essential. Um, I, I think that's what distinguishes, say. Uh, more standard approaches to scholarship, for instance. Um, they're, they're not really interested in a qualitative principle. They, they, they want to quantitatively, um, they get a quantitative lay of the land. So, you know, even in um, areas that I publish in, like, it, you know, now, nowadays you've got, an actual, you've got actual sub-disciplines of religious studies where, where they're focusing on, um, you know, Academics are focusing on the history of Western esotericism, and they like to be very uh, this black-white kind of purely rational and empirical and quantitative uh-huh. uh, in their in their approach. Which you know, I understand the reasons behind that. Um, but but with that it comes, they're not they're not interested in qualitatively assessing the content that they're studying. They're more interested in, in historically and empirically mapping it and describing it and um but i was always i guess interested in a qualitative judgment you know i wanted to you know i wanted to be a connoisseur of these ideas and philosophies and you know to extract the essence in an alchemical sense of uh the important um philosophical developments and, and so forth well so so what is it that makes some ideas a higher quality than others. 
I think uh, I think it's their endurance. Yeah, you know, if, if it's they've got an essence that endures and is, uh, relatively speaking, uh, immortal. You know, mm-hmm. um, some ideas are very contingent and hinge upon culture and time and place and other ideas are more cross-cultural and they transcend all the, the boundaries of, of, of human contingency. And I think those are the probably the more important ideas. Now, I don't think you have to divorce things from their context or from their, you know, the historical human specificity, but, uh, you know, there there is a different kind of scholar or philosopher who seeks those uh, I guess those pure forms in, in almost a platonic sense um, and as opposed to just the, the cultural expressions and, and and all that you know mm-hmm. there's a lot of there's a see the cultural relativity uh, in scholarship which is you know it's always interesting and useful but it's not what I personally find exciting or engaging about an intellectual um, kind of investigation. So. It seems like there's this movement in academia, which was absolutely was around when I was going to school in the liberal arts in the 90s, which I had, I had already, I'd like, uh, had, had my falling out with academia by the time you and I first met. Um, I, you know, <laughs> yeah. right. I was going through my apocalyptic stage, you know, in the 90s when you, when you and I, uh, first met, but there seems to be this idea, this, this movement that, um, you know, that n- no idea is actually really better than another idea that mm. it's all just relative. And if you don't like someone's ideas, well, maybe you're not understanding, you just don't understand what it's like to be in their shoes. And, and, and this idea, uh, this perspective seems to be at odds with the ideas that there are some that that some ideas are of higher quality and to me i mean that's absolutely that's the essence of of um alchemy right and mm. and, and I'll, you probably have a much uh clearer way of articulating this but that is is that not the essence of of of, of the idea of alchemy and alchemical transformation is the idea that no there is like an essence or there is something um about our existence that is of of higher quality and and is more substantial we need to connect with that somehow yeah no definitely um i mean i you know um pun unintended but that is the essence of of the matter and you know alchemy alchemy is very much uh even you know if you take it on a an operative kind of laboratory level uh it's very much about extraction of essences and you know um, going beyond the, the surface of, of the matter and finding the hidden animating essence. And uh, even the etymologies of alchemy in different languages, whether it's um, Sanskrit or Chinese or the traditions that come down through the West, uh, generally hinge upon this idea of you know essences or extraction of essences. Mm-hmm. And um, so I definitely, yeah, and, and you know, on a... And yeah, this really, I think, always come back to this idea because it it's kind of critical that, um, it, as it applies to us as as embodied beings, we we are trying to perform this alchemy of 
extracting our own essence or refining uh, and getting a pure, I think the, the essence is inherently pure, but we, we, we need to, rem, it's more about it removing the, uh, the removing what clouds our pure perception and identification with that essence. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, um, and, um, this, yeah, this comes, I don't know, this, this, this is really a core principle, I think. Um, and it's the immortal part, you know, the essence is always the immortal undying part as opposed to the, and it's always usually hidden in or embodied in or somehow, uh, concealed within something that is mortal and corruptible. Mm. So, uh, I saw on one of your blogs, you wrote, um, our gold is not ordinary gold. Mm, mm. And I don't know, something about what you were just talking about um, makes me think of that. And gold is kind of a recurring theme on the D2 show, just, you know, the esoteric and as well, just the literal thing. But, but how do you see that tying in? Is there a particular mythology associated with that that, that you're getting at in your work? Yeah, yeah. When the, the golden nature, I mean, in Chinese alchemy, they they call that immortal, qualitative essence. You know, this this man of being, I suppose. Uh, they call it the golden embryo. Uh, and you see these images uh, in Taoist tradition um, of a of a being like a monk or a Buddha, and he's opening up his chest, and inside there's this uh, there's a, a golden uh, Buddha or, or embryo. Um, so you're revealing this divine being that that somehow exists within your mortal, um, mortal corruptible being. And in al- alchemy, that whatever that is that you're um, tapping into, that 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 primordial pure state uh, is always conceived as as gold. And um, you know, and, and the metallurgical symbolism, as most people know, alchemy is uh, ostensibly trying to turn lead into gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the theories um, more closely, that uh, what what you start to see is that this golden nature is is actually yeah, it's primordial. So, so metals were seen to grow through different planet, uh, different stages of purity from lead towards silver and gold. Mm-hmm. And silver and gold represented the immortal or royal states of mm-hmm. one of one entity. So they're kind of the flowers of a, or fruits of a tree. Um, but in the same way that that tree, you know, the, the fruit contains the seed, you know, it, um, it contains its, its, principle within itself mm-hmm. uh it's you know um so yeah um but th- th- that theme recurs and it's off uh, even in the earliest western alchemical texts that we have uh like zosimos of panopolis who was uh, a hellenized egyptian alchemist who had connections with the declining Egyptian temple structures in late antiquity. He talked of a man of light or a man of gold. It's hidden inside a man of clay or earth, you know. 
And he talks about how, and he, and he connects clay to the, the principle of Adam, you know, being the Hebrew word for clay, uh, you know, which, which God in Hebraic, Hebraic mythology created the first being out of. Uh, he said, within this body of clay or, or a mortal earthly body, we have this man of light or this being of gold. Or, you know, this, they talked about a chrysanthropos, which is a, yeah, a man of gold. So there's always this immortal principle hidden within uh, a, a mortal corruptible covering. So let me ask you this. So I've, I've also, over the last few years, uh, taken up an interest in, in economics. And if you go back and you look at the history of, of monetary systems and the history of, of gold used as currency, you see well, all these great civilizations, while they were great, they used gold as their currency. And you look at ancient Egypt and then you talk about, you know, the Babylonians and you talk about, uh, you know, Byzantium and so forth. Um, mm. and, and even like some of the, you know, the Western nations, uh, you know, had gold standards up to a certain point. Um, and 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 so, so so here's the question. Now a lot of a lot of uh, countries are off of the not using the gold standard for money, right? We use like fiat currency, and we have like central banking and stuff. But mm. at, but at the same time, gold is being bought up by a lot of these uh, a lot of these uh, administrations. Like the Chinese are, are notoriously buying up gold as as quickly as they can right now. So while all that is going on, at the same time. You have people saying, um, oh, well, gold isn't really actually worth anything. They just, you know, people just think that there's this, this metal, but it's just a metal that comes out of the ground, you know, so it's not really worth anything. Um, when, of course, I mean, I could say the same thing about paper much more easily that it's not really worth anything. But, right. but, but here's my question to you. Looking at, since you're very knowledgeable on the cultural and mythological evolution of all of this, is that does the value of gold, is it purely mythological as far as it comes across in, in, the, in, in the stories of the alchemists? Or do you think that there is objectively some higher value in it? Um, yeah, I would, I would say, I mean, objectively, in a deeper sense, yes, I would say there is because, I mean, you know, on a surface level, gold can be seen to be valuable just because it's a rare precious metal um anything rare to, you know that people want tends to be valuable but um and you know on a mythological level with there's you know but there's so much rich symbolism uh concerning gold and there's you know from you know historical artifacts and and um mythology of, of beings of gold and uh you know weapons or magical items of gold and all that um but speaking from a, a kind of hermetic or alchemical perspective like cosmologically um gold was seen as a an extension of uh, this sort of divine or qualitative principle in 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 reality so it wasn't just a, a metal. So there's a whole, you know, you probably know that the hermetic system of correspondences, you know, where the, the sun is connected to, to gold and the moon to silver and Mars to iron and, and so on and so forth. So you've got these planetary and metallic correspondences, but also, you know, to plants and to, to minerals and to 
uh, humors in the body and, and so forth. So there's, there's a system of correspondences linking different layers or expressions of reality. And gold was always the the king, the the, the royal principle. Uh, it was the you know, the highest um, because it it was the the body or the uh, expression, the material one of, one of the material expressions of that divine immortal qualitative principle, which is you know, beyond all beyond the corruptible world, but it you know it has its um, its bodies or vehicles in this world, and, and gold in the metallic kingdom is is its most preeminent one. Yeah, very very intriguing. So um, let me uh, ask you about you have a new book out, The Leaf of Immortality. Yeah. Yeah. So, so tell me about this. What what was the aim of this book? Um, well, the, the the core content from that book, I, I actually wrote the main material for that book about ten years ago. So it's been material that's been sitting around a while, and it's quite it's a little bit more personal and it's kind of raw and experiential rather than um, scholarly. Mm-hmm. Um. I guess the aim of the book was to bring to show that side of my work a little bit more to reveal that I guess you know you might be able to detect a qualitative essence in my scholarly work sure but here's if you want to know what my raw experiential um, side is like this this book is is really about that and um, and yeah, and it's kind of I've let it that material sit. I really, I mean, the the the, the core experiences in that book derive from uh, the time I took some entheogens uh, about ten years ago. I took ayahuasca and um, and and other things. And it's not about the. It's not really about the the method of of psychedelics as as a path to to these experiences. It's more about the nature of the experiences I had because I was someone steeped in philosophy and and you know scholarship and comparative religions and uh, you know all this esoteric study for for like ten years or so. And I take these psychedelics and uh, all of a sudden there's this. It's like this whole world opened up, and I kind of liken it to like dry riverbeds being kind of inundated with mm-hmm. like living water. Not not to say I didn't have any raw kind of vital experience of these realities before that, but you know they came through very distinctly. And um, so yeah, that's um, and a lot of that, a lot of what it came through has taken me a long time to process. So I didn't want to just put the book out there straight away and um but yeah i I just felt it was time i'm 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 more comfortable now being yes known as a scholar but also known as someone who has direct sympathies with the material i study and it's as much a personal esoteric path that i'm on as as it is a scholarly or, or academic path you know i'm more comfortable straddling those um dualities or those boundaries uh now so I guess that was, you know, that's part of it. But yeah, um, one of the main things that comes up in that book is 
uh, my experience uh, of being, uh, I guess, like a divine mania, as, as Plato might call it. It's I've been divinely possessed, even though it's not quite right, quite the right word, but um, by uh, you know if these divine forces like Loki and and Set Typhon, you know these 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 entities, these presences, these beings came through me very distinctly, and um, I always felt that that material was very potent, mm-hmm. and uh, you know I. I just felt I had to be shared to, to give some insight to what that kind of experience might be like. Absolutely. Know? And so I, I've, I've, I've read part of it. I haven't completed it yet. Um, and it definitely comes across as a, uh, a, a magical, it has that magical record sort of uh, feel, mm. like a magical document sort of feel to it. And, you know, I, and I haven't read, I, I, I haven't read, Alchemical traditions yet? It's on my list. I'm going to get to that, but I understand just from a you know uh, looking at it from the from the outside that that seems like more of an academic work, and that leaf of immortality yeah. is more of the the magical, reflective, uh, internal, transformational type stuff. Totally, um, yeah, yeah. And um, so, and, and a lot of things came out of that. So you mentioned uh, the, the Greek word metis in there. Mm. A, Cunning, cunning awareness. So, what what is the significance of that of that word for you in this? Um. Yeah, there was one. Yeah, that I was reading a lot of Peter Kingsley at the time. Actually, mm-hmm. um, around when those experiences happened, I was I, I'd probably just read Peter Kingsley's book Reality, um, and this is probably. Yeah, I think that book came out in 2003 and maybe my experiences were 2006 or seven. So, you know, uh, Peter Kingsley's work on the, the pre-Socratics and Empedocles and, um, and Parmenides and so forth and how they, there's just a state of consciousness that they – and he, he uses the term metis to describe the state of being where you're in this flow um, – it's kind of like a, a divine flow state almost. And, but for me personally, it was, uh, I also used the, the Sanskrit word Leela to describe it. Leela, you know, this divine, divine playfulness. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's this kind of juncture of yeah, cunning and awareness and like, a um, very sharp, um, mode of perception uh, requiring skill and um, flexibility or dexterity, mm-hmm. uh, but also it's it's playful and fun and uh, insightful and you know, it's, it's this interesting mix of qualities. Uh, but it's very vital and vivid and alive. And um, but one of the main things was that it was, you know, um, not fun in just a you know recreational sense, but fun in a vitalizing. Uh, but also, you know, like the way the gnosis you're getting from your experience around you at every instant, it comes through in a playful way. It comes through wordplay and punning, and uh, as much as um, you know, deep philosophical insight. So it's both got a, it's got a gravity, a, a levity to it, but also a gravity. You know, it's um, so for me that was 
you know, really profound. Because generally speaking, I, I tend to to be or come across a little bit, a little bit, a little bit serious, a little bit too kind of uh, closed, perhaps. And this was like an opening up and a cracking of that shell and letting something much more um, vivacious come through. So you also uh, a line that. I felt it was very powerful, as you say, thus began my going down. And that mm. actually kind of reminds me of uh, Nietzsche, also Sprague Zarathustra. There's a famous line from Nietzsche about uh, Untergehen, where he talks about Zarathustra must go under. Um, is, that, is that an influence for you, or is that, a, is that an yeah, yeah. homage? That's to, a, that's a, yeah, it's a direct uh, reference or homage to, yeah, uh, also began my untergang. Yeah, Nietzsche's Nietzsche's thus began my downgoing. Um, because my experience came, and, and I had this. I described it as a Heraclitian mode of perception. Because Heraclitus, the, 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 one of the other pre-Socratics, would say things like the past up and the past down are one and the same. You know, um, I had this sort of sense that opposites were always intermingled, and each extreme would lead to its opposite. Um, and so that this character, this sort of, uh, and, and Carl Jung called that enantiodromia, this sort of this this point where an extreme turns around and, and moves towards its opposite. And um, this sort of yeah, this polarized yet interweaving nature um, really permeated my experience. So, um, I, you know, my experience was very much a, so, uh, a soaring flight into the heights, but also a, a, this, this gravity that brought me right back down to earth and made, and humbled me, you mm-hmm. know, and, uh, there's, there's, there's also an underworldly element to it. Uh, so it's not just about the divine heights, but the, and not just about, being humbled here on earth, but going deeper into the, the chthonic and the underworldly elements of existence. And mm-hmm. so, you know, it's like, it just breaks through the axis mundi up and down. And, um, so yeah, um, it's kind of the broader, I guess, context I was alluding to. Well, it, it, it came across to me as a really, uh, brilliant way of, of referring to the, tr- to a transition of states, so yeah. you're you're transitioning into a um, sort of a, Carlo, a Carlos Castaneda uh, style experience, but it, but for you it's like Shakti and 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 Loki and Set and all these these really dark entities compared yeah, yeah. to what yeah. Carlos Castaneda uh, would have. Yeah, and I guess you know um, it definitely reflects my influences at the time and, you know, influences that are, some are still more, you know, some are still strongly with me. Others have, you know, waned a little, but, um, cause as I said, that, that material was 10 years ago, but you know, it, it's, uh, it's, it was a hugely important experience for, for clarifying my way on the left-hand path and, and my affinities that drew me to the left-hand path and how, that uh, unfolded for me, you know. And what, what's interesting was, I was never drawn to Loki as a mythological figure to really explore and work with in any kind of way. But you know, I'd read a lot about him, so I was always studying a lot of Norse 
um, source texts and you know mythology and, and runic the runic tradition and but it was always it's always more focused on Odin as mm-hmm. the, you know the god of the runes and certainly the the work of Stephen Flowers was very influential on me when I was younger and yeah I read most of his books and um, but it was yeah it was it was quite it was one of those things that was quite surprising but at the same time it made perfect sense but it was one of those things that was hidden in plain sight it was so obvious i couldn't see it and until it just literally uh erupted sort of through me and yeah and look because Loki has he's that uh much more playful yet sinister figure who's he's one of the gods but he's not one of the gods well he's one of he's one of the Aesir, but he's not uh he's kind of against them at the same time he's trying to yeah. you know, he's doing constantly doing things to undo their work yet um he's kind of vital to most of what happens in Norse mythology, you take Loki yeah. out, and most you, you, most of the action will not happen. And, yeah, uh, and he's kind of male, and but not quite male, and kind of female, and yeah, just like shape. really, really hard to pin down. And then he seems like it, it seems like oh, this is the Prince of Darkness figure within this within this pantheon. But then oh wait, no, maybe he's not. Maybe really that's that's Odin. So sure. that's a thing with Loki. It's always just it's always unclear, and I think. That's part of accepting Loki is part of the um, – one of the things you kind of have to do when you're going through this transition of state. Uh, you know, you're, you're going down in your Carlos Castaneda experience of just accepting um, the, the unpredictab- untr- uh, sorry, unpredictability and the chaos and the sort of like ambiguity, Ooh. the ambiguity of what, what is occurring around you. Yeah, um, and it's – it's that fluidity, you know, because it, yeah, it's, yes, like it, it's, fluidity. A, it's a transitional, uh, transformative modality, and it's yeah, it's it's you got to break down the forms of where you are into a fluid form, and then you can remold into into something else. And yeah, he was a shapeshifter; he changed gender, he changed uh, form, you know. Um, but and then the, the third part of that book i look at it focuses more on the figure of hermes or mercury who was this you know mercurial entity so you know there's a lot of overlap with this aspect of loki and mercury who was the god of the alchemical tradition and her, you know, the hermetic tradition and um you know the 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 metallic correspondence of that divinity is is a fluid a liquid metal you know so um but he's very vital to the art of transformation, which is you know alchemy uh, and so on and so forth. So um, the third part of the book, I, I had in these this, these aren't drug induced experiences. I was just traveling, and all these kind of synchronicities compounded and built up. And uh, but uh, yeah, I, I had this realization that this mercurial hermetic figure uh, partook of the same nature as this Loki kind of figure. And so, you know, it's another moment where I, where a lot of kind of obvious things that I couldn't see fell into place for me uh, and all kind of stacked up and like kind of hit me. I'm like, okay, right. I, I see, I see this clearly now. So you have a word in here somewhere, uh, theophanic. Yeah. Am I pronouncing that correctly? Yep. Theophanic. Does that tie in with what you're talking about here, sort of a coaxing or temptation of matter to take on certain shapes? Kind of. It's more, yes, theophany uh, means 
divine appearances. Um, so the appearances or the forms that something that is invisible and formless can take. Uh, so in a sense, you know, um, if you look at hermetic cosmology or Egyptian cosmology, for instance, the, the world, it's the, the, the cosmos itself mm-hmm. is a theophany. It's, a, it's an appearance. It's the, you know, in the Memphite cosmology, the body, um, the, 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 the cosmos itself is the body of Ptah, you know, um, just, you know, so you've got the divine mind and you've got the divine creative principles and then the, then the divine creation itself, uh, is kind of like the divine mind is creating its own body in which it inhabits and exists and, uh, incarnates in a way. So theophanies are always the visible aspects of reality. Um, and, in, in the same way that gold, like I said before, gold is a theophany of the sun, and the sun is a itself is a theophany of um, this divine intelligence or sentience at, at the root of the cosmos, and, and and so on and so forth. Well, so this this brings up a question then: What is your take on? And, and, and we the the name Plato has come up a couple of times here. So so what what where do you stand metaphysically? On the uh, mind bo- mind body duality question, is there uh, a, a hard distinction between matter and idea, the ideal world? Do they connect and cross over? Um, what's your stand um, on that? Yeah, I, I I guess you can sort of surmise it from what I've said so far, but I um, I, I tend to see matter and the phenomenal world as we know it, as a vehicle for consciousness. Um, I think, you know, Sri Aurobindo, who was a, um, an Indian integral thinker whose work kind of came to say very similar things to the work of John Gebzer, who I've studied a lot. And um, he put it really succinctly, um, if I can remember how he put it. Um, he, said, he said, matter is veiled life. And life is veiled, um, veiled, veiled mind. Life is veiled mind, and mind is veiled, veiled spirit. So you've got these kind of like matter, life, uh, mind, and spirit. Uh, there's so many um, layers or veils of of, of one ultimate. Uh, process or, or sentience or consciousness so you think um so so consciousness precedes matter yes matters yeah. dependent oh. on it do you consider matter to be a uh like sort of an impure sort of state that ultimately uh our aim for becoming is to move move beyond it back to a more pure state of of ideal consciousness um immaterial consciousness oh. Generally speaking, yeah, but because um, yeah, what comes up in, in you know religious studies when you look at this stuff comparatively, you tend to get a um, you can have a world affirming or a world denying mm-hmm. approach to to this question, you know, and you can and you know the not the Gnostics of antiquity, some of their texts were extremely dualistic, and they were like, no, this world is an evil, um, corruptible prison ruled by these um malefic archons that are trying to imprison our soul here and, and all this sort of stuff and that, that really it's like 
the the model of the cosmos was like a prison you know the 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 the, imped, uh, the imperative was like it's a prison break you got to get out and and um and i think you know on on a certain level that is an important imperative to have um but at a, at another level because if you look at for instance, Egyptian cosmologies, they're very, it's, other cosmologies are quite world affirming, you know, the, the, it's, this world is not the product of, a, of an evil demiurge, it's, it's a product of the, you know, it's a creation of the divine consciousness or the principle of sentience itself, mm-hmm. and it's, 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 it's its body, you know. Um, so I think, uh, yes, you have to ultimately resolve yourself to that principle of consciousness or sentience which which is the root of all matter and life and being mm-hmm. um and to to do that you've kind of got to go against the the current of of matter and and you know the world of birth and death mm-hmm. and everything that that is going to you know corrode and die um but at a certain point you can start to actually re- realize that you're not none of this is going to nothing none, none of this actually can touch the immortality of your being anyway mm-hmm. uh you can get lost and deluded in this material world for a long time but ultimately your primordial nature is eternal and ever present mm-hmm. and um, so you can you know if you realize that you can actually start to enjoy and play with the vehicles the, the material vehicles of consciousness and enjoy them this is a more tantric and alchemical approach as opposed to say a a dualistic Gnostic yeah, approach. I agree. But I, mm. So the, so, and you know, you're right, you're right on the money about the Gnostics, um, kind of having this idea that, the, or maybe they came up with the idea that the ma- matter is bad. Matter, matter is like the, the evil demiurge and, and spirit is a good thing. And this certainly, this, this attitude certainly carries through, I think in all forms of popular monotheism today, like in Christianity, it's clearly there with the idea of original sin. When you're born into this, the only reason you're in this world is because of a bad thing that, you know, Adam did, you know, a long time ago. And so uh, the body is bad. And so I I don't know if you've been watching um, uh, Dr. Flowers, our, our, our mutual associate, uh, he's doing a lot of uh, exploration into Zoroastrianism, and the last episode mm. uh, we did a he, uh, he gave a talk um, on on this, and this is one of the big things about the Zoroastrianism is that um, well, yeah, there's a spiritual world and there's a material world, but there's not one's better than the other, but the spiritual world came first. And then the material world grew out of it pretty much exactly like you just described it. And so then where we're going from there, well, we're not necessarily trying to back up, you know, back up and and, and retreat back to that spiritual world. We're trying to go forward in really a synthesis or like 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 a good old uh, Gurdjieff would say, uh, we're going into a third force reconciliation of everything. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, no, I've been um, following some of of Dr. Flowers' uh, posts on on Facebook and and so forth lately, and yeah, seeing the Zoroastrian current that he's bringing in, I haven't um, seen any more than just what he's been been sharing. And I have to, I had a little, a quick listen to the the, the interview you did with him, but I'll have to revisit it. Um, 
but yeah, I think there's, you know, it's not about it. It's not about going back to some primordial. And this is this comes. This is where my work with the Jean Gebzer comes in. He talked about origin as you know, which is a spiritual ground of being, I suppose, mm-hmm. as ever present. You know, it's not it's not something that happened once upon a time, you know, long ago at the the inception of everything. It's actually eternal and, and ever present, and it also mutates and unfolds in time. And you know, really, what we're doing is we're participating in that unfolding and that you know, evolution, for want of a better word. I mean, that's such a, it's a loaded term, and, and we should use that carefully. But um, in the unfolding, you know, we we have to participate in the unfolding of um, of consciousness. And yeah, I think that yeah, I think um, it can be conceived of go, as going forward. It also can be conceived outside of a linear framework mm-hmm. of past, present, future. You know, I think, uh, and Gebser talks about this specifically, that as he, with each mutation of consciousness, you've got a, a radical restructuring of how consciousness understands time and space. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we're kind of on the cusp of, you know, culturally, where our existing ideas of time and space, which are very fixed and perspectival in a scientific kind of way, uh, are starting to break down and be challenged. And and with that comes a fixed idea of time as, as a linear kind of process. And so there's a, you know, I think one of the ways forward for, um, you know, which even the word forward uses this linear kind of, um, you know, assumes this line, linearity, but, um, we've kind of got to break through to a, a nonlinear conception of time and space, uh, which is part of how consciousness will move uh, or unfold. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, absolutely. Have you, um, have you by chance checked out uh, Dr. Quino's book, uh, mind star? No, no, I haven't yet. You know, he's oh. been, he's been putting out books, like just crazy for the last five years or so, just, uh, just, you know, amazing stuff. But uh, I bring it up just because there's so many things that we've touched on right now that recall, like, uh, recall that, like, for instance, um, he really gets into the idea of consciousness preceding, um, um, a material existence, consciousness pre- preceding existence or primacy of consciousness. I think you can, can call that, uh, argument, um, and that it actually, and, 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 and also that it continues beyond that. And, and he gets, I mean, he explains it much better than I just did. Uh, but, uh, he also gets into the dimensions thing, which, mm. uh, you know, for me, and I would imagine for you too, is going to harken back to Aspinsky a little bit. And he starts talking about fourth dimension being time. And he talks about fifth dimension being, uh, consciousness or perception or, or gift of sight, we'd say. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. I I haven't really kept abreast with his, his recent work. So I'd be keen to check it out, but yeah, this idea of dimensions of consciousness and Gebza, uh, is very, um, he, he uses that as one modality of describing this, you know, you, you can describe this process of consciousness unfolding or mutating, um, 
through the language of dimensions, you know, mm-hmm. going from zero or one dimensional through to four or more. Um, yeah. Um, so that's, I think an important, yeah. And certainly, if, certainly the time, the issue of time is, is critical, um, to the way consciousness experiences reality, you know, I mean, and cause basically we've, we've got, well, Gebza would call it, you know, mythological time was cyclic time mm-hmm. in the ancient before, um, our more scientific mentality, dominated we had uh, you know a- ancient cultures had a more uh, cyclical understanding of time yeah. and so you know it was it was the pattern you know it was the, the cycles of nature and, and this in the cycles of the stars and um and even cosmology you know, cosmologies you know things would creation would arise and fall away and, and re-emerge again you know um where and then we've sort of thrown that idea out and, and come with this linear time that there was just, you know, like a, it's just a timeline. It's just calendar and clock time. Um, and Gebs is sort of saying what we need to do is re- recognize these two, be able to integrate them in their efficient forms. So he's not about throwing out previous mutations or evolutions or mm-hmm. unfoldings. He's, the, he says the integral consciousness has to has to kind of distill the best of what has gone before, and, and that and that has to be integrated into its its um, modality. Right. But at the same time, we're going beyond uh, freeing ourselves from time, you know, and that that is really, I think, part of the path of immortality. You know, yeah. when you can liberate yeah. yourself from time, whether it's cyclic or or linear, you know. I think so too. And I think, yeah, integrating, integrating that, that, that previous state with, with what is current, say it's integrating, uh, you know, spirit with matter, um, is an important part of it. But I think the integration also has to be, um, again, going back to what we were talking about at the beginning of this, it it has to be a quality, you know, there, there has, it has to be of a higher quality so that the result can be something, um, better than what we started out with because the the yeah. classic the, the classic p- paradox with like you know hegel's dialectic of you know thesis antithesis synthesis so it's like i had a great idea and then someone called bullshit on it and so that we then we agree to disagree and then the end result is just sort of a sort of a lame sort of lukewarm kind of uh kind of thing and it's like we don't want that in initiation and transformation we want the end result to be something higher than where we started out with. So whatever we integrate with can't be like, uh, I guess, a negative lower influence. Does that make sense? Definitely, yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's like a, you know, a distillation, uh, al- alchemically speaking. You, know, you want to you extract the, the, this qualitative aspect. Um, there was a book um, by a guy called Valentin Tomberg. It was, it was called Meditations on the Tarot. And it's um, it's actually a really profound esoteric text, and it's deeply philosophical, mm-hmm. and uh, it's much more interesting than it appears on the surface. And, and um, but yeah, one of the things he brings up is that that issue of synthesis. How do you synthesize? You know, uh, when you synthesize two things, do you come out with the stale middle ground compromise? But he talks about there's a synth, you know three kinds of synth, um, three forms of synthesis. So there's a 
a synthesis which finds a its balance on the same or equal level mm-hmm. is, is a synthesis which finds its 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 point of balance at a lower level, and there's 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 uh, one that it, you know forms that synthesis on a higher level. So I think that speaks to to what you're getting out there, definitely. Oh, absolutely. That sounds like that's got to be uh, a chart in uh, in search of the miraculous somewhere. What you just described. Right. <laughs> yeah, well, this, I think this guy either knew Spensky or um, yeah, he was working with those ideas. Clearly, yeah. Yeah. So and then uh, who is it? Bennett. There's a Bennett in in the fourth way work too, right? Not the. There's like a Crowley, a friend of Crowley who was Bennett, but then there's also a Bennett who was in the work. Sure. Who got really into this law of threes, you know, formulas. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because with, um, I mean, speaking of themes from, you know, back many moons ago when I knew you to, to now that are kind of still current in my work, it's that I, Trinitarian kind of philosophy is one thing that's come through because a lot of the, a lot of my work I've focused on René Schwala de Lubitsch, who yes. was, you know, more famously an Egyptologist, but more covertly a hermetic philosopher and alchemist. And uh, at the core of his alchemical philosophy is this uh, hermetic notion of sulfur, mercury, and salt, which is the hermetic trinity, I suppose. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's essentially spirit, soul, and body. Mm-hmm. Uh, in, but it, these terms are used to express those principles in any form of manifestation, whether it's in a metal or in a, in a man, you know. Um, so, and but the I guess the reconciling principle for Schwala was the salt, which is the body principle. But it's also it's a body that is understood as participating in its father and its mother. It's like the son or child that participates in its father and mother. Uh-huh. It's, and by father, it's the paternal or, or divine principle. And then mother is the, the corporeal or, um, material principle. Mm-hmm. And this, and so, so these kind of, there's this, there's this embodied embodiment has to be understood as a juncture of, I guess, a transcendent, and a concrete principle, and to me that that's important because it says that concrete reality, you know, embodied embodied being is not. We can't just perceive it and and stop at the sensory level. We have to understand and perceive things as participating in, you know, the metaphysical and the I guess, proto-physical or the the not yet physical or the the prima materia. Um, and that that to me it gets around that my you know. It addresses that mind-body duality by saying reality is non-dual, and it, you know it's both uh, physical and metaphysical. Mm-hmm. The two are the same coin. But as you're saying before, with flowers and uh, the Zoroastrian traditions, it's yes, the spirit or consciousness came first, but um, it's that's got a body, <laughs> and the universe is its body, and we're you know we're we're vehicles of that consciousness in our kind of uh, living forms. Right. It's like the um, it, it, there's always these questions that come up that even if we stay, say that like, well, matter is like a stage that we're going through, then, well, what is the thing that connects 
the non-material? How, if, it, what is it that would connect the non-material with the material in the first place? And so it's like this, the duality of that is just a thing that I feel like just goes on and on. Whereas like we talk about an essence, if we just talk about essence, like going through these stages, because I think that's the thing that would remain true. Say that I, as an entity, I start out as a completely, uh, as pure consciousness, and then I find myself in in matter, and then maybe after that I move on to some other like synthesis or um, evolution of of all of that. Well, what remains the same throughout that whole thing that I can still say at the end of it? Oh, I was a self. You know, uh, it, it was me through the whole thing. It was I through the whole thing. What is that? Is that our essence? And it then does so, that you know? And then what is the, the essence thing? Is that spirit traveling through this stuff, or is it something else? You know. Yeah, I mean, that's yeah. These are the important questions, and I think um, alchemically, this this trinity of sulfur, mercury, and salt does speak to that because mm-hmm. it, it, it fundamentally it boils down to you know Platonic metaphysics. I think. Uh, where you've got the divine forms, which are in yeah, they, they, it's they're invisible, but they're these formative pattern creating um, principles. Then you've got matter, unformed matter. You know, it's matter that just hasn't had this this form, divine form imposed upon it to create it into a, a structured entity. And then then the juncture of those two creates um, formed matter as we know and perceive it. And so the, the, the patterns are the constants, you know, the, 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 the higher metaphysical forms are the principle of eternity and constancy that creates stable, uh, stable realities over time. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, you know, the forms that, they take are made of corruptible substance and, and if they don't, they don't last forever, but the forms, you know, the forms take bodies and those bodies pass away. And, um, that's, you know, and uh, with the, the sulfur mercury salt triad in, in hermetic philosophy, it's dealing with that same reality. You, you, um, I think, um, but yeah, and, that, and that's, that's how I kind of, I, that there's a kind of, uh, approaches that I I'm immediately thinking of when I'm, I'm like dealing with these, this sort of question. Mm-hmm. So is this um, if 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 we read alchemical traditions, do you get into a lot of this stuff in that? Yeah, um, yes. There's a chapter on Schwala where I will kind of explore that that philosophy a little bit. There is a um, I've just put a paper I've got an academia.edu page and um, I just put up a paper the other day. It's a study of Schwaler's idea of symbolique and uh, deals kind of with this whole idea uh, that's kind of the focus of the paper. So and the paper is called the Juncture of Transcendence and Concretion. Excellent. Um, so if you want, I can, I'll send you a link and you can, you know, you can tag it on to the, to whatever you want to uh, do when you put this Absolutely. Out. Yeah, absolutely. Send us a link for it and I'll put it in the, in the show notes so people can, can check that out. And then I also want to ask about new, you, when you mentioned new magical Egypt, now is that that, the DVD series, magical Egypt? Yeah. Yeah. There was a series, uh, came out about 15 years ago featuring John Anthony West among other people. And, um, yeah, I, I actually 
uh, met the creators of that show uh, who were living in Queensland in Australia, of all places. What, so uh, did you meet, you met John Anthony West? No, no, not, oh. no, he wasn't. I met um, the the show's creators, Chance Gardner and um, Venice, his wife. And um, yeah, but they're very close with John West. And, you know, I've, we've spoken to John West through Skype a couple of times. And um, yeah, uh, but they're doing a new series at the moment. There's a couple of episodes out already. Um, but yeah, they've got John West on board and they've got me on board and a bunch of names that we know like graham hancock and a bunch of new names we don't know um so yeah it's it's um they're still in the process of uh i think there's a couple more episodes about to be released any anytime soon but yeah so it's it's a whole new round of, of magical egypt and that's at um ma- magicalegypt.com Yep, I think that should get you there. Um, again, I'll send you a link uh, just to be sure. But um, awesome. yep, if you look at Magic Egypt, you no, it's, find it's, it's, it. I, I, I know I've seen it, but I, I'm almost 99% certain that this is the same thing because I think I've seen you uh, reposting them before. And it's like, I mean, this is, a, this is pretty high profile. Like, like Joe Rogan, right. Joe Rogan says absolutely fantastic. So this is endorsed by Joe Rogan. So you know it's the real <laughs> shit, you know? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. And so you're in, um, you're in it then? Um, the new series, yeah. Okay. Um, so, yeah, so I'm not That's sure awesome. how, how much Joe Rogan's behind the new series, but if, if he could plug that one too, that would be great. But, um, yeah, um, it's – but, you know, one of the issues that's really coming up is a lot of the stuff we've spoken of, this um, duality of uh, – and left and right brain or, you know, different approaches to consciousness and the, the mind matter um, problem and all that. So, you know, that's, it's, you know, the, the, the creators are very, uh, Chance Gardner in particular is, is very uh, interested in, in exploring that kind of territory. It's, it's, it's awesome stuff. Um, and, you know, without getting into the, the crazy world that we live in, um, I know we're not alone in, in, in thinking that right now, more than ever, mankind needs to kind of like wake up like just a little bit, you know? <laughs> yeah, just enough. Yeah. Just a little bit in that direction would help so much, you know? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Um, totally, totally. But, you know, I guess, you know, taking another a Gajefian leaf, um, what are your thoughts on – um, you know the amount of awakening possible like I remember Gurdjieff often talking about not everyone can get it going back to the kind of prison break metaphor you know not everyone can break out if everyone tries to break out then the guards will clamp down and uh, everyone tries to wake up at once you know but a few a few can slip through I think that we can leverage things in that direction so I think as far as um, you know, the, the initiated or the elect or, or however you want to frame that, the people who, are, who, who themselves feel that need that we, you know, I have to wake up for myself because I realize yeah. I've been asleep. So, you know, these, these people find a school and they work on awakening themselves. So along the way, um, and and y- y- there's the danger of getting caught up in the idea that well we've got to help the rest of humanity wake up too we've got to help everyone else. But the I problem, that, yeah. 
So I carry on. So I was just going to say the problem with that then is that by reconnecting with those who haven't really um, found that need, haven't really awakened to that need themselves, is that by reconnecting with them, you actually kind of might get pulled down because there's inertia. You know, there's there's actually inertia pulling a lot of people down and it takes a lot of strength to break out of it. And so if you spend too much time trying to connect with others, you're not going to be able to get out yourself. So you need to get out. And, 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 and the secret is, though, you're not leaving the world behind. You're not saying, fuck the world, screw them. What you're doing is you're getting out of there to where you can, like, start leveraging conscious evolution in yourself and in the world on a higher level, which ultimately will help everyone else. Because I think there is a, a, a uh, tipping point in which things can be leveraged in, 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 a, in a better direction to where there's, you know, peace, yeah. no, peace on earth and that stuff. What do you I think? Do think? Yeah, no, I do think, um, I do think we owe something, you know, back if we, if we do, uh, manage to find some form of liberation. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's a danger of, of getting immersed back into the, into the, in the, in the fray, you know, and, and, and drawn down. But, so there's different. I guess you got to know your strengths and your limitations, and and you know be very very realistic about um, your abilities in that regard. Um, you know, one thing I try and do is, uh, you know, people at least people who have walked a path and, and attained some degree of awakening, awakening or freedom. I think. You know, you can directly help people and try and wake people up, or you, or you can keep the way or the path alive and, mm-hmm. and show that it, you know, stop it so it doesn't get overgrown, and um, you can keep that alive or, or bring clarity to the understanding of the, the very, you know, need and, and means of liberation or awakening. Um, you know, those are all good things. You know, um, so I guess that's what I try and, on a, on a broader level, that's one thing I try to do with my work uh, is. Um, to bring that, cl- keep that clarity of vision uh, alive. Um, and if I can help, yeah, I mean, like you said, at the end of the day, you can't wake someone else us out. Sorry, you can't wake someone else up for them. Yeah, but, but you can certainly help create the conditions and, like I say, leverage. Right, I, and, and that's where I, 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 I think you're right on the money. It's about creating conditions. And that's a word Ospinsky says that uh, a lot in, in his writings. But I was going to say, you know, in, um, in Gurdjieff's Beelzebub's Tales to his grandson, uh, he talks about Ashiata Shimash, which is probably almost certainly um, Zarathustra, um, <laughs> based on the things that he's talking about. And also Ashiyata is, is sort of the words mixed up for the term Asha, which means truth and, 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 and other things like that. But one of the things right. that, that, that Ashiyata does is he teaches the system of uh, silent meditation. He's like the, 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 the prophet who taught uh, by teaching nothing. And, mm. and by teaching, uh, you know, silent reflective you know meditation and then tasking each person to do it to teach it to a hundred other people and then they say within like 10 years time of of this system he he actually created peace on earth you know (laughs) for like you know i don't know like you know another millennia or something before you know right someone else 
came along and fucked it all up. But <laughs> but it is possible. I believe it is possible. And and we're at phases right now where we're at a phase right now where things are just extremely mechanical on on what and on most of planet Earth, I think. Um, yeah. and it's like we went through a period of, you know, all the back in the day, all the initiatory centers that used to be in the East, well, they disappeared. And the East is all uh, you know, struggling against barbarism and uh, or the Middle East. And and the West had the initiatory centers, and so now that's the thing that's that 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 hangs in balance right now. Where are those going to go? And and I see I see, you know, people out there, people like you. Um, I think that what you're doing is helping leverage it in the right direction. It's fighting fighting the good fight, you know, <laughs> F- fighting right. against or, or Zarathustra would say fighting against the lie. Yeah, 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 yeah. What was the um, what were the those three Zoroastrian virtues? It was like uh, you know, to shoot an arrow or hit the target, to to tell the truth, and and some of the third thing. But yeah, I always kind of I don't know that always struck me as you know on the money, as you say. Yeah, there's yeah. Uh, there's uh, good good thoughts, good words, good deeds is one yeah. uh, trinity out of, or triad out of, uh, out of the yeah, uh, Mazdan stuff. That's yeah, actually very magical when you look at it. It has to do with like an idea being, you know, being uttered as a word and then becoming like a real thing in the universe and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Um, yeah. I mean, that triadic structure, uh, I think is, is, hugely important you know it's 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 a integral kind of model in a way that it's got the i mean it's how i understand egyptian cosmology is is proceeding from a divine mind a um an articulation of the logos Mm -hmm. you know which is the creative powers which structure reality uh which the gnostics called a demiurge and, and kind of maligned but um and then there's the creation that's magically evoked into being itself and that is um you know that is the the universe is the body of the divine mind which it evokes through its own magic into being and you know it's uh, so it's kind of like uh it's it's got this beautiful self-reflexive auroboric um nature to it yeah and so I, i right here i probably have to explain for the uh benefit of our of our listeners that at one time um Aaron and I were in a uh Setian element that was called Triomazi Kamno, which is like a Gurdjieff word for the law of threes. And this helps explain why whenever we talk to each other we end up distilling everything in the universe down to a triad of threes. And, and apparently, the fact that we haven't spoken in what fifteen years that that one thing has not changed, yeah, speaking of you know <laughs> these universal constants that remain at the time uh it's, it's got to be one of them, yeah, absolutely well, all right, my friend, so um good luck with the new magical Egypt thing, good luck with yeah. your new book. Uh, Leaf of Immortality and continued best wishes and promotions for the alchemical traditions. What's next on your plate? Well, I'm running Rubido Press at the moment. So um, next on my plate is to 
put some more books out by other scholars and good people. We've got a book on Zosimos of Panopolis the, uh, coming out and a French hermetic text, um, as well as I'll, I'll be putting some, some more of my own work out. So Rubido Press um, is in a bit of a state of uh, – it's going through like a, a phoenix-like rebirth at the moment. So the site is um, – it's kind of going to be re-emerging in a few weeks' time with uh, a bunch of new titles. So just I'll send, again, I'll send you a link and you can keep an eye out for it. But um, yeah, I'm just going to be putting more of my work out, but also putting the work of other people out whose you know whose vision is aligned with mine in some way. All right, excellent. All right. Well, definitely send me all those all those links. We'll have that posted on the on the show notes so uh, people can check that stuff out. And I just want to thank you for taking the time uh, for us to connect and, and discuss some of these things today and uh, keep fighting the good fight. Yeah, no, thank you. It's, uh, it's good to see you again. And yeah, it's, um, it's good to be on board. All right. Take care. And then just a couple of days later, something amazing happened. He actually found the music that we were talking about. And, oh my goodness, I listened to it, and it took me right back to, I don't know, it had to be like 2002 or 2003 when um, I heard this before. So, I am very, very, very pleased to reintroduce to the world Dr. Cheek and his Clockwork Magicians.
So smooth and dreamy, and you know what? Psychedelic too, so I detect uh, some Pink Floyd in this. And I mean old Pink Floyd, like metal, uh, Wish You Were Here era type stuff. Not anything like Roger Waters. I do not mean Roger Waters or any of his modern day uh, propagandizing efforts, but old school Pink Floyd, the heart of of Psychedelica, which there's a, a hint of that in um in dr cheeks clockwork magicians but there's also just enough mechanical influence in it you know the drum machines and some some minimal programming is just enough to give you the same feel of actually the film dr fives the abominable dr fives which if you've not seen that you really need to see that movie it's a very significant piece of cinema that had a strong influence on the early Church of Satan, not just stylistically, but there's even some uh, philosophical things in there. Um, I want to say that Anton LaVey's concept of ECI is also demonstrated in that film. So the spirit of all that certainly carries through in Dr. Cheek and his Clockwork Magicians. So I want everyone out there to go read Dr. Cheek's books. They will make you a smarter person. And if you have the opportunity to talk to Dr. Cheek, you friend him online or find him on Facebook, I want you to encourage him to do more music and release Dr. Cheek and his clockwork magicians. This is the kind of music that can... Uh, really changed things in my opinion so thank you again to Dr. Cheek for his words, wisdom and music and I will look forward to chatting with you all again next time and until then keep the dark fire burning (laughs) 